Hey guys, welcome to The Culture Journalist. I'm Andrea Dominic, here with my co-host Emily Friedlander. Well, it's been another crazy week on the internet, of course. And today, actually, we find ourselves amidst a viral tweet storm about a subject very near and dear to our own hearts. Music journalism. Emily, fill us in on what's going on. Basically, a Twitter user who goes by at C-O-L-L-N Smith had a viral tweet kind of talking shit about Pitchfork. And the tweet was, Pitchfork brainwashed everyone into thinking pop music is sacred poetry that reflects the national cultural spirit back onto itself. Like, no, this is just a rich girl on pills. The tweet has... 3,236 retweets as of this recording, 50,000 likes. I think it was like 40,000 likes an hour ago. All right, so clearly resonated with some people. What do you make of all this? The first thing that struck me was that this tweet, I kind of understand why it resonated on a platform like Twitter because it is, you know, pretty reductive. I know there are lots of people who are working there and trying as hard as they can to support emerging artists that otherwise wouldn't get attention. However, it did point to something that I think a lot of people in the industry are feeling, which is it can feel sometimes like artists that are not super popular and already famous don't get a lot of attention, which I think is a very big problem, especially in today's information economy. But this kind of immediately just snowballed into this very contentious conversation online about poptimism and whether it's wrong to make fun of a publication writing about pop artists alluding to the long history of certain publications, including Pitchfork, of ignoring pop artists and especially ignoring women artists, musicians of color, etc. Right. And to me, I think it was also very telling kind of on a meta level that Pitchfork almost seems to be like an avatar for music journalism in this discussion. And I think the bigger picture is just how how reduced and flattened and hyper-focused on particular topics the music journalism and culture journalism landscape at large uh, has become reduced to. Totally. And fewer and fewer platforms to even be talking about, just as maybe it may seem like there are fewer and fewer artists that are being highlighted and talked about. Although, again, it's also confusing because is that actually true or do we only perceive it to be that way because of the platform and what's being shown to us? Which brings us to the question that we wanted to talk about today. Has music journalism lost its way? Okay, there are plenty of things about music journalism these days that are easy to complain about, depending on who you are. If you're a music journalist, the diminishing career prospects and low freelance wages are probably the first thing that come to mind, along with the feeling that it's becoming increasingly hard to land a pitch on an artist or developing news story if it's not something that your editor feels is destined to go viral. If you're an artist or a casual reader, you might feel, justifiably so, 
like the music press is overlooking the voices and communities that deserve a seat at the table, or simply that the quality of the writing itself leaves something to be desired, especially when compared to golden ages past. It's something that we've been wanting to talk about for a long time. After all, talking about the internet's impact on music, including writing about music, is one of the reasons why we started this podcast. But we were waiting for a sign from the universe that it was finally time to open up that can of words. Because where do we even begin? It finally happened when Ann Powers, the NPR music critic and veteran music journalist whose work we grew up reading and admiring from afar, published a post on Facebook pinpointing what is perhaps the biggest and most pernicious shift in the landscape of music journalism over the past decade. She said, here's something I think music writers might want to think slash talk about. The rise of the quick react slash hot take colliding with the unmanageable proliferation of accessible music releases and streaming platforms algorithmic favoritism of the very few have combined to enforce media focus on pop's 1% to the extreme. She goes on to talk about how music journalism has evolved into what can feel like an endless proliferation of think pieces and news stories on the same handful of big name major label artists, breathlessly documenting their every utterance or fashion move with the same high seriousness that many of us critics used to save for major album releases. Meanwhile, underground musicians and mid-level artists simply don't seem to be getting nearly as much airtime as they did just a couple of years ago leading Anne to raise a thought-provoking question. Is this a correlation to the rise of the 1% in other aspects of culture? Lucky for us, Anne was kind enough to join us today to talk about how we got here. And as someone who has been chronicling American pop music and youth culture on the ground for about four decades, from the scrappy alt-weekly scene of 1980s San Francisco to the hallowed halls of the LA Times and the New York Times, We can't think of a better person to help us make sense of the shifting role of music journalism and the music journalist, along with the economic, technological, and wider cultural forces that have shaped it. But it's hard to figure out a path forward without getting clear on what it is we're losing when we lament music journalism's decline. What is the point of music journalism and criticism? Why did we need it in the first place? And what remains, even in the era of streaming and social media that makes it still important to have now? We'll be going long on these questions with Anne and comparing notes on our respective journeys through the field right after the break. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. We are here with Ann Powers. She is a critic and correspondent for NPR Music. She's based in Nashville. She's also the author of the book Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul in America. And just a quick note that her opinions expressed on this episode are her own and not affiliated with any companies or publications. Hey Ann, thanks so much for joining us. I'm so excited to be here. I can't wait to have this conversation. So to start things off, in your Facebook post, you pinpointed how music journalism these days can kind of feel like an endless succession of quick reactions and hot takes on more or less the same handful of one percenter artists. It is easy to understand why artists not in that one percent would be frustrated by this. But why was this frustrating to you as a music journalist? 
You know, specifically what triggered that post was noticing that, you know, Taylor Swift is re-recording her albums now, and she had just released, I think, maybe her first of the re-recordings, which she's doing to reclaim the music after her relationship with her longtime label went sour. And I noticed that the New York Times had published, I think it was four articles on Taylor in two weeks or something like that. And look, this is nothing against Taylor Swift. I like Taylor Swift. I like a lot of her music. But I just was struck by the ubiquity of coverage for this relatively minor moment in popular music history. Today, before coming on to talk with you, I glanced at several of the top music sites. I looked at NPR Music, Pitchfork, Stereo Gum, and the New York Times music section. I also looked at Rolling Stone. And the artists featured on each were the veteran rapper Fat Joe, who was doing a Tiny Desk concert for NPR Music, Billie Eilish, BTS, and then on Rolling Stone, it was a television show called Sweet Tooth. And I think that's kind of even a better illustration of what was troubling me than the fact that Taylor got a lot of coverage for what she's up to. All of these sites, you know, also cover emerging artists, right? And they, they're all known for discovery and, and at different points in history have been the leaders or are currently the leaders in discovering new artists and supporting mid-career artists and, and veteran artists. And yet here we have pretty much a range of like hit makers, you know, uh, two major hit makers, one veteran hit maker, and then a television show. So it's not so much about what's being covered by the mainstream music press that got me down, but what is being stressed and emphasized. So, so what were your initial thoughts as to why this was happening? Well, I think on a very obvious level, it's always been happening. You know, it's not like entertainment journalism hasn't always covered stars. I mean, it originated in Hollywood, essentially, with magazines like Photoplay as almost an engine of Hollywood and the star system. And music writing originated as coverage of teen idols. And then also kind of like this sort of weirdly semi-anthropological coverage of rock and roll, uh, where mostly women journalists, actually, in the ladies' sections or the, uh, the family sections of newspapers would write about this strange phenomenon afflicting our teenagers, you know? Elvis Presley or whatever. But what's changed is the way people receive information. And I think the way we receive music and the effective algorithms, the effect of the Web 2.0 has uh, had the strange effect of consolidating everything at the top and mm -hmm. scattering everything at the bottom and doing real damage to the middle. Right. Which I think one could make a case that that's a, a larger trend for, you know, culture at large right now or society at large, even. I mean, if you really want to zoom out, it's you can talk about the disappearance of the middle class, right? Yes, yes. I mean, for me, this is why I'm passionate about music journalism, because covering this space is such a microcosm of what's happening in the world at large around us. But it's interesting to see how that's trickled down and is reflected in that space. Well, it's totally connected to the supposed disappearance or impairment of the middle class because, I mean, the musical middle class, which 
you know, in some ways has always been a myth. And certainly, I'll add the music writer middle class has Mm -hmm. always been pretty much a myth. I mean, it's always been a field where only a few people made a living. But such as it was, both of those middle classes are very imperiled now, and even more so since the pandemic, especially for musicians who are uh, in the age of streaming music, have had to earn more and more of their keep uh, performing live, you know, and selling merchandise, which they mostly sell at their shows, right? And with those streams of income being imperiled, actually, music writing has become more important right now. But we are also faced with this predicament where what's perceived as our most impactful writing is whatever gets eyeballs and Mm -hmm. what gets eyeballs is what's already gotten eyeballs because that's how algorithms work. Yeah. It's sort of whatever has already proved successful in terms of getting eyeballs, like, you know, these one percenter artists, the Taylor Swift of the world, or it's sort of whatever is the hot story du jour Yes. Um, That blips and then, you know, you never talk about it again. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you brought up music news because I think that's um, the whole redefinition of what music news is, has been part of this process that people haven't talked about a lot. I think we tend to focus on, and and as I did in, in my Facebook posts, the artists who are getting covered. Oh my God, there's so much coverage of Billie Eilish. Do we really have to read another think piece on her latest, you know, uttering of a sentence or whatever, (laughs) her latest variation of the color chartreuse, you know, that she's wearing or whatever. But just the very idea that like music news is breaking news the way that hard news is, right? Or the Mm -hmm. way that sports news is. That's a shift. I mean, that's always existed on some level, but just this idea that we all have to jump to attention every time a name artist releases something instantly, like that we instantly have to react. It's not only that it requires a writer or critic like myself to process things really quickly, but it's just, what does that do to our kind of like notion of how music is created? how music impacts people, how music communities uh, form, the idea that there's always breaking news and that the most important breaking news is at this extremely mainstream level of mass reproduction rather than in community where most of, you know, anyone listening here probably fell in love with music in, in community in one way or another. And hence why some of these developments might have been you know, magnified by the pandemic where the community aspect was, if not extinguished, it it was mediated by these platforms. Yeah. In the 20th and and now the 21st century, one reason that music has emerged as this really rich area of cultural inquiry is because it exists simultaneously in a couple of different spheres. The fact that popular music is recorded music has been a recorded form for longer than most other, you know, mass media, right? Around the same age as film, longer than television, certainly longer than the internet. And then at the same time is something that has a different, though connected meaning when performed live in community with other people that just like explodes and expands the ways you can think about it, right? But having lost the meat 
world <laughs> experience <laughs> of, uh, of live music for this year, I think really pushed things over the edge toward the virtual and the recorded. And at the same time, streaming has changed uh, our perceptions of recorded music. I don't want to say that this is all bad. I mean, I do think there are some very, very positive things about music moving online, uh, the democratization of technology, just consider like the indie rock highway of the 1980s, back in the days of college rock, <laughs> as they used to call it, right? And you had this network of zines of self-produced publications that fans made that people would ship and mail around the country. Uh, you had people getting in vans and traveling from city to city and sort of informal networks, record stores, clubs, maybe a bookstore that connected people. But those connections, you still had to like travel a long way to realize those connections. In the virtual age, we can instantly connect with people around the world who share our interests. So that's a positive. And, and I don't think we should only have these gloomy conversations about like how hard it is for everyone, because I mean, the possibility of getting your music and your music writing out has never been greater mm -hmm. than it is right now. The possibility of making a living is harder than ever. And then there is always the question of impact. And I think the question of the writer's self-perception in terms of how we perceive ourselves, our role is pretty confused right now. Yeah. And that's something that we definitely wanted to get into today, um, kind of talking about how that role has changed. Um, could you take us back to the time when you first started writing about music professionally and what sort of landscape it was for people wanting to introduce unknown or mid-level artists to the world? Yeah, I feel like I have kind of a, I have like the classic American music writer story, I would say the Huck Finn, but hey, let's take it to Canada and say the Anne of Green Gables of music <laughs> writing. <laughs> let's have a woman as our main character in our fable. In that, I started writing about music when I was in high school. Uh, for my high school newspaper in Seattle, quickly graduated to a local music magazine called The Rocket. And then uh, I moved to San Francisco at 19 and quickly became a staff member at what became the SF Weekly, the alternative weekly in San Francisco. Um, that was the early, mid-80s. That was where I kind of honed my chops. Went on to grad school at Berkeley, got my master's in literature, not in journalism. And then through a series of convolutions, dropped out of grad school to go work at the New York Times. Quickly left that to work at the Village Voice for a while, went back to the Times, et cetera, et cetera. So my path was from regional journalism through alternative weeklies to the mainstream. But I wish that my career could be replicated today because I feel extremely lucky that I had time as a young person to develop in community in a city that wasn't New York um, or LA, a really, really in deep connection with the musicians, the artists, the bohemians of that place and of that time. Y'all tell me, like, is there equivalent? Is there an equivalent experience online now? Yeah, it's funny. I don't know what it is now, but I feel like my path was the aughts, I guess, and tens version of that, where instead right. of starting in a local alt weekly, I started my own blog. And then I got noticed by people at Pitchfork who brought me in to start 
a publication they were starting, Altered Zones. At the time, though, it was just the beginning of the self-publishing craze. So I, I guess I got in on it early, but I don't know if that's the same for people now. There's also fewer jobs to be like poked out of obscurity into. Or yeah. There are fewer jobs, but you know, there were never mm-hmm. that many jobs. <laughs> this is something I feel like I constantly have to say. This is like the moment I enter like grandma mode of like, there was, there was never that great, kids, you know, but, <laughs> but, uh, you're always pretty lucky to make any kind of living as a music writer. I think that as an arts writer in general, but when this topic comes up, what I want us to all think about is not so much whether or not jobs in media have grown or, you know, become scarce, but how expensive it is to live as a middle-class person in this country and how difficult it is to survive without health insurance or, have a decent rent or be able to even afford groceries, you know, and transportation and all the costs of just day-to-day living. And that to me is what really has damaged the arts in this country and what's damaged uh, criticism. This is why it's all so intertwined, right? We always have to think about the economics of the material realities of making art and also of responding to art. I mean, yeah, it becomes quite meta that way, I guess. Yeah. For my for my own path, I mean, I decided, I think, from a pretty young age, I wanted to be a music writer. And I remember looking at careers like yours and, you know, a lot of your peers and wanting to pursue and intending to pursue and somewhat partially pursuing the kind of trajectory you had. Like, I started writing about music in high school. And then after college, I I was writing for LA Weekly about music. And I remember, you know, in my head being like, and then one day I want to be the music editor for LA Weekly. Um, (laughs) But then I went on to work for a daily newspaper in Las Vegas. And then I was like a music editor advice. And things seemed to be going okay. And then a few years ago, I feel like everything really hit this existential crisis point. Because, you know, even internet publications kind of started falling by the wayside. Mm. But it felt like there was actually more urgent music news and a need for music reporting than ever. Oh, yeah. But finding less places than ever to be able to do that, especially when the pandemic hit. There were so many stories that I wanted to be reporting. And I just, for the first time, was just getting turned down by publications because they were just saying, we just don't have the money right now. And it, and it killed me. And I guess it's part of what led to us starting this podcast, because it was really tragic to me, the idea that some of these stories just like were not going to get told, not because they weren't worthwhile, but because there wasn't a home and for them. And something I've definitely noticed over the past year, working at culture publications, writing about unknown or even mid-level artists was it's just like very, very difficult to land a story, (laughs) especially. Um, That was like one of the first things to go. Just back to the concept of what is news. During the pandemic, every day there was a news uh, story to tell about how artists were coping, how venues and other institutions were not coping. But again, with the loss of locality, internet-based publications, those stories start to blend together. I think that's a problem, right? It seems like what gives those stories urgency oftentimes is like direct engagement with the community who's reading them, right? So, you know, if 
clubs in San Francisco are in crisis and simultaneously the classic venues of New Orleans are about to go under. And then, you know, here in Nashville, is the Ryman going to survive or how are they surviving? Well, to a national publication of any level, that's all the same story. You know what I mean? Right. And I, I think you make a really good point there, which is that they're able to forge connections with their communities. And I yeah. think that is, like we were saying, is what I think a lot of just arts and culture journalism in general is based on. And I think that's part of why we see it struggling. That's part of why when you look at potential career trajectories, why it's all just kind of gone off the rails. It seems like it's just a matter of like emphasis and what the algorithms reward. Again, it's it's the tool by which these reviews or features are being distributed that's like causing the problem because it's all about what gets shared. So you have in previous podcasts talked about new platforms by which communities can form, you know, and I love the dark forest concept that one of your mm -hmm. guests was talking about a few episodes ago, and it's not going to scale ever on the same way as the clear net, that kind of mainstream internet, social media platforms. But mm -hmm. I am very interested in thinking about how music writing in its broadest definition how can that play a role in building and sustaining community in these different kinds of spaces, as well as on more conventional interactive platforms? Uh, I think we really need to be thinking about that as much as uh, the old notions of what music writing even is or was. At the same time, I want to hang on to the art and craft of writing itself, which I, I hope we can get into that a little bit. curious, when you first started out, how did you understand the role of the music critic or journalist? Yeah. What sort of formats tended to dominate the coverage? So I was a teenager in like the new wave era. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I was really into English music publications. Those were kind of my first loves. I love this magazine called The Face. I don't know oh, if yeah. y'all know it. Yeah. And uh I liked the design. It was really cool. That was a time when, I don't know, it was like a lot of high style in the writing, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of attitude, a lot of voice. Artists would be doing wild things in these, in these interviews, and it was just very alive. But then pretty soon, through the rocket, I started to read other alternative weeklies, and then I found The Voice. And of course, The Voice changed everything for me because that showed me what cultural criticism could be in periodical journalism. I, I should mention before that, I also had discovered uh, Griel Marcus's writing. And so I had this idea of that you could do like real intellectual work and beautiful poetic work uh, in book form, writing about music. Um, and the LA Weekly was actually really important to me too. And they were doing that same thing of like, the reviews felt like cultural criticism and also sometimes like poetry or, you know, auto fiction or something. And the reporting was, you know, this wonderful blend of literary writing and, and hard reporting that was new journalism, essentially. So, so that's how I 
how I came up. I never heard of a listicle until many, many years later. (laughs) Writing that was literary, fun, but also kind of participating in this act of wider meaning making. Yeah. The daily music writer was also an important figure to me and soon started reading the daily critics at the New York Times. And when I can get a hold of the LA Times, Robert Hilburn, those writers, as a teenager, I wasn't wanting to emulate them necessarily, but they showed me a function that a music writer could fulfill. And, you know, as a teenage girl who was obsessed with music, but knew I wasn't a musician, I had to figure out a role for myself in the music scene. And a lot of that was covering things live, you know, covering Mm. shows live or doing scene pieces. I remember one of my first pieces for The Rocket was on like skateboarders. (laughs) (laughs) I'd say that when I got into music journalism in like the late aughts, that was a format that I remember doing and assigning. And I don't know when exactly it happened, but maybe sometime in the mid tens or even a bit before that, it wasn't being assigned anymore. Live coverage. And it could also be that it's like very hard to do that well in a way yes. that's engaging. So I've, I remember like earlier in my career editing so many pieces that were just like, at this show, this artist took the stage, then this artist took the stage. <laughs> and it just, there's just not much story to it. It probably takes yeah. a skilled person to make that come alive. <laughs> I think I've reviewed a th- thousands, wow. I don't know, of shows. And and that was something I really tried to do. And when I was at the New York Times and the LA Times, I was all about, you know, making the amazing lead that would draw someone in that really painted the scene. I remember one time I reviewed Hercules and Love Affair at this club in Echo Park, do you know what it's called, Andrea? It's like, was called the Echo, I think? The Echo, anyway. yeah. Yeah. Now owned by Live Nation. <laughs> and I remember writing about this one person in the audience who was holding a fan aloft and how that fan, you know, was a connection to all of dance music history because like back in the 70s, disco fans were a big thing and they have been appropriated from like gospel music, right? So see, that was like my goal as a live music reviewer put the reader in the place with this like image that just won't quit or like I reviewed Yanni once (laughs) the new age artist and this is one of my favorites and one uh, there was a moment in his show I think it was at Radio City and this is for New York Times uh, in which his collaborator one of his band members came out and was holding like a 50,000 year old lute (laughs) you know it was announced or something and so I kind of started with that image of how ridiculous it was that this new age guy and like flowing white leisure wear was like holding this supposedly ancient instrument so that to me is what makes a live review great is bring the person into the room but there was a moment where things shifted and I'm trying to remember if like somebody actually said this because this could be a false memory but I seem to remember somebody on the editorial team saying, people don't want to read live reviews because that already happened. There's no consumer value to that. Mm. It's not going to happen again. They can't experience again. And I just thought how tragic, you know, how tragic that there will be no witness to these events. But then I think simultaneously there was this idea that 
everyone was witnessing these events because now everyone had their smartphone out and everyone was taking photos and transmitting video of these exactly. events. Exactly. You know, why do you need someone's opinion? Same way of thinking that says, well, you don't need a record review because you can just go listen to the record. So then, you know, you have to like question what is the function of criticism? And maybe the function of criticism isn't strictly to describe, but rather to interpret, even enhance our notion of an experience. Um, And also to record it for history. As someone who does a lot of archival work, the fact that there are not live concert reviews anymore is tragic. It's tragic for that scholar in 2035 who's going to be, you know, wanting to write about Billie Eilish and maybe she'll get reviews because she's big enough. But what if you want to write about, I don't know, you mentioned Black Country New Road. Like, will anyone ever review any of their shows? Like, I will. <laughs> get on. Get out there. Do it. Or the the only traces you would find online are like Instagram photos. And then maybe if something really bad happened at the concert, there would yeah. be a walking <laughs> article. About right. It. Right. Right. Exactly. And it's not enough to understand a historical moment. And you could argue, well, everything's recorded now. But online archives, there is absolutely no guarantee that those will last. And even though we digitize things in order to preserve them now, digital material is the most fragile material of all. And so I do worry about future generations, if there are future generations and the world doesn't end, (laughs) how will they understand history without us doing that work? All of this, I think, is to say and why, why I think we appreciate the great writing we were talking about, like in the old LA Weekly and the value of this I feel is a great record review, a great live show review is not to fill in the gaps of something you can find out for yourself by either going to it or buying or listening to the record. It's that it gives it context. Totally. I really like how you put it, Anne. You said earlier, like we're mapping the clouds in a way, you know, and that might be like a very lofty thing for us to say, but I think it's true. And I think that's the real pleasure And what makes it kind of its own art form of reading a great live show review, because it's not just telling you what happened. It's not just somebody's like shitty iPhone video. It's putting you in a place. It's telling you about a scene and a moment and a community and a connection. It's it's understanding not just what songs were played at a show, but who was there and why and where does that come from? Like, where is that going? And it culturally locates you. Yeah, completely. I want to share a quote that I pulled out uh, in anticipation of our conversation from Shabaka Hutchings, who is this amazing jazz musician from London that I found courtesy Maddie Karras in his excellent Music Redef newsletter. Uh, And this is his quote. The aim of artists is to put information out there. And when people are ready, they can come to it and hopefully further themselves. The music, contrary to popular belief, is not universal, but it has the ability to universalize. It can become universal. That really struck me as so important and such a great way of thinking about music right now for a couple of reasons. One, I think uh, one of the most promising and exciting, uh, though often difficult uh, realities of this moment is that we are reassessing because of the reckoning that's happening uh, worldwide about 
racism, sexism, homophobia, marginalization of people, we are recognizing that like outmoded ideas of universality are problematic and that you do have to work to like learn and understand uh, other people's experiences. But at the same time, this is what makes us a human community, if anything, is the effort to understand each other and to somehow come together. And, you know, I love that he said music is not universal, but it can universalize. It can become universal. And this is what music writers do. They are among the water bearers of culture. They, they carry it from one person to another, from one community to another, maybe from a small community to a larger one. To me, this is what the center of music writing has to be and has to continue to be. And the, what excites me now is that the, there's growth in the diversity of who's doing the work. Believe me, it was like pretty freaking dire when I started out. You know, it was so many white men and like many great writers who were white men, right? <laughs> but now the to me, the leading voices are people of color, queer people, LGBTQI people, people women, um, and that is changing the game. And it it is tragic to me that at this very moment when finally the field is changing, opportunity may be shrinking. Maybe I don't want to accept that opportunity is shrinking because this is the exact moment when it needs to grow so music writing can truly fulfill its potential. Your Facebook post was kind of lamenting this focus on the same group of artists all the time and less of a attention on smaller and, you know, mid-level artists. When you first started out, did you feel that part of your role was also drawing attention to artists people wouldn't have heard before or artists that represented the counterculture that were not already backed by the major label system. Was that part of what being a music critic originally meant to you? Oh, hell yes. <laughs> and, and yes, because I was not even thinking on national terms, much less, you know, global terms. I mean, I started by writing about local music, you know, local bands, local new wave bands that you will never know mm -hmm. <laughs> existed. <laughs> For me, like graduating to the quote unquote big time was doing a phoner with Jane Weedland from the Go-Go's. More frequently, I would be, you know, interviewing a local poet who was giving a reading at Intersection for the Arts on 16th Street, four blocks from where I lived. I didn't care at all about whether anybody outside of California knew who these people were. Like mm -hmm. I knew my readers because my readers were like, the people I lived with and hung out with and in the clubs. When I moved to New York, obviously that changed. But even then, I mean, when I, when you work for the times, you know, you're working for the paper of record and you have to learn to work in it right in a different way. But even at the times, it's so funny because as a music writer, and especially then like music writing is always the outsider. The music writer is the person in the office at the newspaper who like, doesn't have a desk or hardly ever comes in to sit at their desk who, you know, is wearing a promotional t-shirt and has their headphones on and maybe showered or maybe didn't comes into the meeting. And I mean, all those cliches, which are kind of rooted in, in this masculinist idea of what a music writer's 
is. And so it's a problematic stereotype, but it's also true. (laughs) But at least for me, there was always a sense that as a music writer, I was championing the underdog always. I I would say up until the point where I went to work for NPR Music, which is a strictly music vertical. I always felt like to many people in this newsroom, what I care the most about is completely frivolous, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I've definitely felt that way through a lot of my career. Um, And even when working at music publications, because I, from the very beginning, was like, my job here is to support artists that are not already getting attention. And I kind of got into journalism, I'd say, right around the time of the pivot from print to digital. I worked at the Fader for a long time. Mm. And what was interesting about that moment was that it felt like a really fertile time for being someone who wrote about underground artists because there was this kind of optimism around the internet in the air of like, oh, these artists that maybe in the past would have just had a really serious following of 200 really cool people (laughs) across the United States. Now we can use the internet and show hundreds or thousands of people how great this music is. However, it also did feel like magazines ultimately proved to be maybe a bit better suited for having that orientation because they would always put a very famous person or a soon to be famous person on the cover And people would often pick it up for what was on the cover. But then there was then room within the magazine for the smaller artists. But when you're on the internet, it doesn't really work that way. Where there isn't this way of using the the person with more clout to get people's foot in the door to talk about the little guy. I'm so glad that you brought this up because I have in my notes that I prepared for this conversation. I have the words front of the book written in capital Mm. letters. And... I think the physical experience of reading a magazine, I think that is where you you surprise yourself. Oh, what, wait, I didn't mean to be reading an article about sheep herders in Scotland or whatever, you know, and yet now I'm really interested in this thing. And in a music magazine, you're totally, completely right. Like front of the book belongs to the artists you loved and wanted others to know about. And the same thing with review sections, because review sections would have, um, at at The Voice, there was a lead review, there were riffs that were longer, and then there were licks, which were little short ones. And so you could get a little lick in, you know, about Mm -hmm. some local band that nobody heard of. And I don't know, I mean, Pitchfork still publishes such a wide array of reviews that I don't think those artists are going completely unreviewed. And now there's platforms like Bandcamp, a, a platform that gives me a lot of hope. But even in the case of when that stuff is is there, I mean, there's always this question of like, is anyone looking at it? And I think in the era of print, you both knew people would look at it because if you have a magazine, you are eventually going to thumb through every page mm-hmm. because you're going to put it next to your toilet. <laughs> or... You just didn't care. So you simultaneously assumed that someone would read what you wrote and you didn't worry about it. And mm-hmm. now every one of us thinks about metrics all the time, you know, and I'm really wanted to get here with you all. I, I wanted to talk about like the psychic toll 
a focus on metrics, a focus on numbers, a focus on eyeballs is taking on creators and on us as chroniclers of culture and as creators in our own right. I think it's really potentially fatal when we dwell, you know, on this goal of like getting the most retweets, getting the most eyes on what we did. Um, it really skews our values. It, it's kind of almost an echo chamber <laughs> of, right. of metrics, right? You know, yes. it's like the, the publication is trying to write about someone who will pop off and the artist is using the publication essentially as another PR arm so they can get more clicks and likes. Yeah. Sort of um, on that note, Anne, what role did the internet play at first in expanding or diminishing music journalism's emphasis on emerging or under-recognized talent? I'm tempted to say, and uh, please argue with me because I might be wrong, that everything that's happened was laid out from the beginning. That in even the earliest days, I'm not talking about like whole earth catalog days, but you know, the earliest days when we were all on the internet in one way or another, there were several seeds that got planted. One was artists being able to take control of their own careers and their own publicity and their own interactions with fans. Earlier uh, interfaces like MySpace, I guess, like were the progenitors for what we have today. Secondly, the nicheification of culture at the grassroots level, which I think is a vital thing today, even if it can be be that dark forest where you may also not see anything that isn't directly in front of you that, mm -hmm. you know, stems from zine culture that predates the internet mm -hmm. and really flourished on the internet. I think thirdly, you know, the growth of what music writing can be and the way that the spirit of music writing and the craft of music writing now informs podcasting and informs video and informs interactive platforms and, newsletters, all these different forms, I think that, you know, was there from the beginning. So those are all positive things. But at the same time, I don't know, where did we lose the thread? Um, <laughs> maybe we were cast out of Eden when print journalists initially wouldn't accept what the internet had to offer and had the conversion happen quicker. Or, you know, I remember at the LA Times, the web team was completely separate from the print team initially. What if the adaptation had been a little more organic? I found towards the beginning with um, the rise of blog culture, there was a very playful and fun moment where I know there were zines before, but there were these new platforms where you could work outside of established gatekeepers. I was too intimidated at the beginning of my career to even apply for jobs at legacy media publications. And I didn't even think that I would necessarily be able to cover what I wanted to cover there. So I started blogging and it was really fun. And then somewhere along the way, it might've been the rise of streaming. It felt like what would succeed on the internet even, or what kinds of articles would be successful started shifting or newsrooms started believing that only certain kinds of stories would succeed. And it, I also... I have not worked at like a mainstream newspaper. Like a general interest publication. Yeah, or the kind of publication like the New York Times, for example, where maybe the fact of writing about something or an artist in itself 
brings attention to the artist. But yeah, there was something that somewhere along the way, maybe it was streaming, sort of made at least the curatorial aspect of being a music journalist feel de-emphasized. I want to reply specifically to what you're saying, because I don't know if it was streaming or if it was, you know, social media, because the idea of sharing, and you all have talked about this on other episodes of the podcast, what is community on social media? Mm -hmm. It was interesting to me when Caroline Besta said on your podcast that mainstream social media platforms are simply advertising, because... I'm an old and a lot of olds (laughs) that I hang out with still use Facebook for like actual community interaction and talking to each other. So I don't think I totally agree that it's simply for advertising. I have other reasons that I feel very weird about Facebook, but what they're not doing is using it to discover things very much. Uh, Discovery and water cooler conversation are not the same thing. You know, we, we, we gather around the water cooler to talk about mayor of East Town or whatever mm-hmm. the most mainstream thing is at the moment. We don't necessarily gather around the water cooler to, I don't know, like talk about the newest, you know, free jazz release out of Toronto. <laughs> That's not happening, except for it is happening with like five other people who are your friends, right? So I feel like that's what turned it more than streaming. We can talk about the economics of streaming and how messed up it is, but as purely as a consumer, streaming for me was like a gift. And again, I'm just qualifying again that I know it's a huge cost for musicians. And I, but just as a listener and as someone who writes about music and wants to be able to explore the catalog of Archie Shep because I, you know, never did before. And this year I listened to more Archie Shep than I ever had in my life. But it's also something that desperately needs curation because for it to have that function of truly serving as, as a source of discovery, somebody has got to lead you through those millions of tracks. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know if it's the fact that music is streaming as much as, the fact that the way we talk about music kind of changed or was perhaps exposed, you know, the fact that music critics are outsiders, that only a small subset of humanity cares passionately enough about music throughout their whole life, wanting to discover new things, that has now been exposed and factored into the economy of publications. Whereas it used to be that running a review of, you know, Tuvan throat singing, like I got to write a live review of this group Hun Hurtu when I was at the New York Times, that was considered valuable because it was like part of the mission of the Times to cover a wide array of culture. But once cultural coverage has been linked to clicks to views and considered like an economic driver, Mm -hmm. then what is your mission? I think that's the question. And then discovery um, becomes much harder to justify as part of your mission. Well, that's the thing. I think so much of the discourse around music, whether it be via streaming or via publications, has been flattened such that music is now a product. It's a thing to be consumed 
Yes, right. There's a great quote from Jarvis Cocker. He says, you know, music has become like a scented candle. It's something you put on in the background to set the mood. Because you, again, you're not linked by something shared, other than maybe, you know, the music itself, even the discovery process. It's just so, it feels so much more like consuming rather than participating to me. Well, let me ask you both a question in relationship to that. Because there's lots of people out there for whom music isn't really about discovery. You know, it's about old favorites, or it is background. And I think we just have to accept that. <laughs> we have to accept that there are those sad souls in the, for sure, in the world. <laughs> and perhaps there's more of them than us. But anyway, do you think for the person who's engaged enough with music to be interested in discovery, that discovery feels like more of a risk than it used to, or perhaps just more labor, or even just more of a time suck? I also wonder if the one thing about streaming most prominently, Liz Pelly has written a lot about this, mm-hmm. that it makes us passive in our reception of music. You know, maybe that's the the damage being done to discovery, because it just feels like too much work to people or something. I don't know. It seems to me that when I was a, a kid, like we would discover music by, you go to the record store and you had your clerk who was your friend or whatever, and he would or usually he, unfortunately, would would say, hey, here's a record by the Bush Tetras. I think you would like this because you really liked that record you bought last week by the Au Pairs. And it felt fun and easy. Or you discover a band because they opened for another band you liked. Or you mm-hmm. discover a band because you were laying in bed in San Francisco one morning and suddenly Sinead O'Connor's Troy was played over KUSF, mm-hmm. the college radio station, and your whole life was changed. That was Ooh. me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It was like discovery was part of the fabric of my life, you know? Yeah, I mean... Those methods of discovery that you listed, they definitely resonated with how I feel like I originally discovered music, especially the idea of the record store clerk as sort of this like expert. I think that maybe the issue is that streaming platforms, Spotify in particular, they're designed for a specific type of music discovery, emphasizing ease of use. And they're using algorithms to decide what you might like next. And an algorithm doesn't really know you beyond your previous behavior on the site. And it can't really recommend something that is out of left field that would blow your mind. Or it's not like designed to do that. I feel like it's designed to kind of get data about what you have already in the past liked, what kinds of sounds, and then recommend something to you that just sounds similar to what you already like. and that's such like a narrow vein to reduce yeah. the discovery process too. Yeah, and I, literally today I just tweeted about this, but Spotify just unrolled this new feature. It's like an experience where you get stats on your own listening habits or whatever, and it's literally called "Only You." And <laughs> only you. Yeah, and I think that's that was to, that was to distinguish it from another feature that aggregates data about joint listening with other people. This idea of you are this kind of island that has these specific likes and dislikes, and we are going to find the perfect thing that is exactly in line with what you already like. That feels like it encapsulates streaming's effect on listening. Right. And it's so different from having the human curator who 
is like, here's this radical new thing you've never heard before, but trust me. <laughs> Less people think this is only about an aesthetic experience. A, a huge thing that's lost when discovery doesn't take you outside of your comfort zone is, you know, listening to music by people who don't look like you, who might be a different race than you, for example, you know, or might be from a different country than you, um, just have a different kind of experience than you have. For me, music, and I, I don't want to be too much of like a hippie about this, but because again, I know it can also be problematic. You know, I'm not advocating cultural colonization, but music has opened a lot of doors for me to meet different kinds of people, to get interested in different kinds of cultures, to experience sympathy, if not empathy, and to learn about the world. And that is one thing that I think is, is very dangerous about the kind of isolation that, that you're describing mm -hmm. with, with a platform like Spotify. Uh, you know, another thing is who's emerging in the mainstream now? I've long been fascinated by the way that corporations like Disney have, you know, churned out a lot of our stars. And this is true of so many of the new artists emerging and that have emerged in the past few years and at the center of the mainstream. You know, K-pop is its own show. We can't get too deep into it, but I mean, K-pop is fascinating, but it is a factory, you know, it is a culture produced in a kind of factory system. That's not to denigrate it, but I'm just saying like, it makes it all the more difficult for an artist who doesn't already have corporate support to emerge at that level. do you see the rise of poptimism playing in the shifting coverage priorities in newsrooms? And do you view it as a positive, a negative, somewhere in between? I've been waiting for you to ask me this question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think I'm pretty strongly identified with poptimism. Mm -hmm. I was poptimist when poptimist wasn't cool. Yay. I think some things have been conflated in recent conversations around poptimism as like a, a scourge or a dark force that's shifted attention too much to the mainstream and, and caused music writers to have to focus almost exclusively on mainstream artists. For people who are listening who might not be familiar with the term, um, can you talk a little bit about what poptimism is? So poptimism is a term that Jody Rosen, I believe, came up with, my friend Jody, after Califasani published a piece in the New York Times called The Rap Against Rockism that was in the early 2000s. Califa was talking about how uh, rock critics, who are mostly white men, had a bias against rap partly because they didn't value the very central elements of hip-hop. And he really was examining how music writing favored guitars, you know, favored certain kinds of vocal expressions. The very idea of like what a song is, all of which related to music production by white people. You could even say white men, mostly. And that article just set off a firestorm in uh, music writer circles. After that, this term poptimism arose. It was also furthered by Carl Wilson's wonderful book, Let's Talk About Love, which was part of the 33 and a Third series. 
of short books about albums. The subtitle of that book is When Good People Have Bad Taste. And, you know, Carl was saying, hey, let's really look at why we think something is bad. Why do we, snobby music writers, snobby white male often, <laughs> perhaps indie rock grounded music writers, why do we judge an artist like Celine Dion, um, whose album that's talk about love was kind of the central text of this book? Why do we judge them as bad? And why do fans of this music think it's good? And in examining that, he kind of offered a template uh, for looking at music that had not been critically considered before. So poptimism was initially kind of a confrontation within music writing, you know, with music writing itself. It did coincide with the rise of the the internet. And I think in retrospect, we can see that there was an advantage, one that I can tell you because I was there, it was not obvious in the moment. There was an advantage to suddenly publishing long think pieces on whatever was at the top of the charts. So I think over time, Poptimism became, you know, once it was like this kind of radical move away from uh, hierarchies that put rock bands at the top, put white male performers at the top. Poptimism opened up criticism, you know, and, and meant that people were writing about women artists, women of color artists. But arguably, the term has now just come to mean any writing on mainstream pop. That was never what it was intended to be. And it's not necessarily the same thing as, you know, saying, oh, I saw 15 different articles on Taylor Swift in a publication documenting her every move. It's more, let's include a piece that is a critical analysis of Taylor Swift and that takes her work seriously. Right. And that's not to say that you can't be enthusiastic about Taylor Swift and write wonderful criticism. Mm -hmm. Rob Sheffield has done a ton of that, for example, and he's just one of many. But I think Poptimism, unfortunately, has been tainted by forces beyond its control. (laughs) You know what I mean? And then the fact that it happens to be what performs well on the internet then makes Poptimism becomes like a justification for journalism's degradation into the thing you were complaining about in your Facebook post. Yeah, I mean, the most significant music critic to emerge in the past few years, Hanif Abdul-Rakib, is a classic optimist in many ways, mm-hmm. you know. He's all about connections. He's all about actually never occupying a niche. He's, he's always been a generalist. And, you know, he writes in a warm, accessible, you know, and also very um, deep way about popular music. And I think he shows what it wasn't intended to be in the beginning. (laughs) I mean, you know, if it's like if you drew an arc and you went from Kay Sané's article back, The Rap Against Rockism, and you landed with uh, Hanif's book on the tribe called Quest, well, that would be that would be the rainbow of optimism, my friends. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and and I think, you know, a lot of good stuff has come out of it. (laughs) But, you know, every pendulum swings and needs to swing back to correct itself. So I think that's kind of where we're at, maybe, with Poptimism now. Are there certain kinds of writers who get left behind in this information economy, like the same way that there's artists who are? Like, do you feel like the field favors people with a different set of skills or affinities or even personality characteristics than it did when you first started out? I definitely think that 
it's harder now for writers who don't foreground their own personalities and their tastes and their identities in some ways. But I mean, this isn't, this goes way beyond music writing. This is all writing right now, right? I mean, the need to be a brand, the need to be a personality, or if you want to put it in perhaps kinder terms, the need to create community around yourself means, uh, you know, extroverts are going to be favored. Also, people whose personal stories are compelling or who can make their personal stories feel compelling. And this is, you know, there's an interesting evolution to this too, because if you think about in music writing, who were the first music writers to emerge who put their own stories first? I actually think Chuck Klosterman is a key figure in this. Mm. When Chuck emerged, you know, Chuck was a writer who came from the Midwest. He wasn't connected to any like, quote unquote, school of music writing. He didn't write at The Voice, where a lot of major writers uh, the 90s got their starts or made their careers. And he also didn't, you know, wasn't necessarily associated with Rolling Stone. And he presented himself as this like ordinary music fan, right? You know, writing about heavy metal, writing about music that other people didn't respect. In a sense, he was a poptimist before there was poptimism mm. or alongside poptimism, even though the music he liked was rock. And he also branded himself or like a good memoirist, you know, presented himself as a public figure and he could play that role. So, so this was starting and then it, it's accelerated ever since. And now, because every creative person has to promote themselves via social media all the time, mm -hmm. the personality is important, you know, mm -hmm. and the personality is what gains you fans. And this somehow merges with being a fan, right? So like, you know, the music writer's willingness or ability to articulate enthusiasm for mainstream artists now can enhance their career, especially if those artists declare themselves interested in or connected to the writer, right? Mm -hmm. So then you have this little echo chamber, as you're saying. So who gets shut out? Well, one person who gets shut out is the reporter mm -hmm. who wants to not foreground themselves. Emily, you know, stop me here if you don't agree. But like, I think it's something that we've both struggled with, too, because I mean, we do a lot of criticism, but we both are also very big on reporting. Yeah. Well, you've done amazing work, Andrea, of like reporting, you know, sexual harassment and assault. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's such key work, such important Thank work. You. Well, Emily was my editor on that story. So, <laughs> well, there you go. See, y'all. I mean, and that that's the kind of work that is so crucial, but it isn't going to like further your brand you know what I mean I don't have very many Twitter followers admittedly yeah right but yeah the thing that I find so difficult is just having to put all of this unpaid labor into cultivating that yeah. side of my presence I guess and if you really want to play that game you got to put just as much time into or even more time into that aspect of things than the actual yeah. work. And that's just not who I am. And I, my solution to it, honestly, actually has been specifically to focus on reporting. I'd say I, I've gravitated away from certain kinds of writing and certain kinds of roles, primarily because I didn't want to play that, that game. I was thinking about this before we were talking and like, what's what is the relationship of the music writer to celebrity now, as opposed mm -hmm. to when I 
I don't know, really like my national level career started in the 90s. I feel like in the 90s, you were rewarded for your proximity to celebrity. You know, mm -hmm. if you could be that journalist who, you know, Eddie Vedder wanted to talk to or who, you know, Madonna wanted to hang out with, then, then, that, then you were at the top of your game. But most music writers, it, they were awkward, you know, like awkward people who were weirdos, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that wasn't necessarily where we thrived. But then now it's not your proximity to celebrity. It's you as a personality yourself. And mm -hmm. it's the same, you know, I mean, take the interesting case of Tyler Coe, who does the great podcast, Cocaine and Rhinestones. Like what's mm -hmm. amazing about that podcast is his work as a writer, as a researcher, as a scholar, as a person who really like from the ground up, like goes so deep into these stories. But he's also rewarded because he presents as this quirky guy with a quirky voice, you know, and a personality. In every one of these cases, like these really great writers are also having to do that work of being personalities. And it is just like so much labor. I know so many great writers who have just like dropped out of music writing or mostly dropped out of it, going from being full time to, you know, not at all or gone back to school because they just couldn't hack it. Like some of the best writers. Some of the be it breaks my heart. It's like a lost generation. Since you did mention school, though, I want to say that some of the most exciting music writing, much of the most exciting music writing is coming out of the academy now. Now, I don't want to paint, uh, you know, the career of the aspiring university professor as any easier than the career of the, <laughs> the aspiring music writer for, for general publications, because we all know, like, it's such a such a tough road to get a job that pays anything in academia now. But it's amazing what's happening in academic music writing right now. I mean, this year alone, we have Daphne Brooks publishing her magnum opus, Liner Notes for the Revolution, and Maureen Mann publishing her great book on Black women in rock and roll, Black Diamond Queens, Kim Mack publishing her book, Fictional Blues, that totally recasts the blues. I always mention those three, but there's so many more. Imani Perry, Salamisha Tillett, two writers who don't only write about music, but now are like writing f all the time for mainstream publications that they're academics as well. Full disclosure, I've been part of this pop conference, which y'all need to come to. We built such an amazing community from that. And really it's a community connecting academics and non-academics. So it's stunning what's happening. The whole field is being redefined by writers of color, by queer writers, you know, Karen Tongson and other, anyway, I'm not going to just list names. It sounds but... so alluring. I'm very, very <laughs> interested to learn more about this. Yeah. I mean, I do think that it's a more open field in many ways to do the kind of work to make the inquiries than maybe outside of the academy is now. But, you know, speaking of what what speaking not of who's being left out or left behind speaking a little bit about what music writing can be now I think there is this way in which you can redefine the role and you know move beyond the page like to be working with audio you know to do podcasts to to do video like there's a lot of potential to to take the principles of music writing, if I, if I may, into new realms that 
I'm excited about now, you know, and, and I actually honestly don't listen to that many music podcasts, but you know, our own NPR music zone louder than a riot, I think is a good example of that. KCRW's lost notes. Uh, there's one out of San Francisco. I really love called echo chamber. Uh, when I listen to podcasts like that, I feel like that's music writing, you know, there is hope because the good work is still happening. I want to acknowledge how hard it can be, but I do feel like there's ways to do great work now and it's happening all over the place, you know? I know you did a mentoring session for younger music journalists recently at PopCon. What advice would you give to young music writers trying to find their voice and their professional footing within this particular moment of music journalism? Advice I would give any writer is read a lot, read as much as you can, find your soul connections in books. Don't just read online. I guess that's important. Uh, Read beyond music writing, but do also read music writing and write wherever you can in whatever form. Like the most important thing is to do it. I feel torn about whether I should say like, don't expect to be at the center or like be in the big legacy publications right away because it sounds like I'm being discouraging or creating hierarchies I don't want to create. But I did a lot of work, all of my early work in relative obscurity, you know, and that was a gift. Again, as I said before, I was able to support myself on very little money because of the economy being different at that time. But if you can find a way to just do the work in ways that feel fulfilling to you in, ter- in terms of the work itself, rather than like, did you get tons of clicks on this piece? I think that's what's going to help you grow. The whole point of being a music writer is to be creative, to be inspired by people who are artists and creators, to be creative yourself. And that feels like a self-help line, but I think it's really true, you know? For me, that's what it's been all about is like keep striving to to fulfill your own idea of what music writing should be and reinvent it again because it always can be reinvented in a new and interesting way. I would also add to that, if there's someone whose work that you like, reach out to them. Yeah. Like we're all in this boat together and we're all here to uplift each other. If you're interested in doing music writing, music journalism, and you're younger or just starting out, that's cool. Don't let anyone else tell you different and like reach out to other people that you also think are cool. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's really true. And I and But I guess I want to say that this moment is such an important one, as I said before, in terms of like the field changing. And I, I feel like women are dominating the field now, which is amazing. <laughs> This is such a paradigm shifting moment for music writing in terms of the people who are doing it. And I hope when we form community that that community is diverse, that we talk to each other, that we don't isolate in our own identity clusters. I just think this is a crucial moment for for the field to really represent what popular music is, you know, So, you know, I'm dedicated as much as I can be to like mentoring and advancing the careers of young writers of color, um, young women writers, LGBTQIA writers. This is where the future lies. This is where history 
mm-hmm. uh, also always lay. And so that is just something I want to say, like, let's keep talking to each other and keep the field moving toward looking and sounding like what music looks and sounds like. Amen to that. <laughs> Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> well, Ann Powers, thank you so much for coming on the show and having this discussion with us. It has been wonderful. It's been just what I needed today. Thank you so much. I hope we continue to talk. The Culture Journalist is produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and Andrea Dominic. Our theme music is by Mark Donica. For more on our discussion with Anne, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And if you like what you're hearing, leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism.